When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden hit the road today to pitch his infrastructure plan in the all-important state of Virginia. We'll talk about that. Plus, Republicans and Donald Trump got a big win in Texas over the weekend. We're going to be speaking with Rick Davis and Scott Bolden. And welcome to Sound On on this first Monday in May. I hope you had a great weekend. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and joining me today is Bloomberg political contributor Rick Davis, as well as Scott Bolden, Democratic strategist and former D.C. Democratic Party chairman. Last week, Rick and I and most people in the world got to watch President Biden give his first joint address to Congress. He announced in a sort of a really stark contrast, not just to his GOP predecessors, but the last two Democratic presidents, that big government is back. And he laid out two massive infrastructure plans totaling $4 trillion, which he said will be paid for by the ultra-wealthy and corporations who have gotten away with it, according to Joe Biden, with not paying their fair share for so long. And following a trip last week to Georgia and Pennsylvania, today he hit the road traveling with First Lady Jill Biden to the all-important state of Virginia, where in the morning they visited Yorktown Elementary School, and then they headed to Tidewater Community College. And here's what President Biden had to say today. We have sound on that. There's an awful lot of possibilities, an awful lot of hope. And the good news is, and I think there's overwhelming bipartisan support for this. If you look at the polling data, Republican voters overwhelmingly support it. Now I just got to get some of my Republican colleagues to support it. And that's what he is aiming to do. And over the weekend, uh, some of our Bloomberg colleagues, Nancy Cook and Laura Davison and Eric Wasson, they were reporting that Biden is not only open to negotiating with Republicans and willing to consider various paths to getting these plans passed, including breaking them up into multiple bills, but he's also said to be taking a leading role in the strategy to that end. And we heard Ron Klain tell CBS that Biden has invited moderate Republican senators to meet this this week, including West Virginia Senator Shelley Moore Capito. One thing the president said he's not willing to do, however, is nothing. And one big question that came up over the weekend is whether Biden is willing to consider what one Republican senator suggested, and that was GOP Senator John Barrasso, who was on ABC's This Week on Sunday, where he told host Martha Raddatz that a number of the more environmentally friendly facets of the Biden proposal should be cut to save money. We have sound on that. 
I actually believe there's a deal to be had if we leave out things like the Green New Deal and recyclable cafeteria trays and climate justice. This is a staggering amount of spending like someone with a new credit card. And these are for things that we don't necessarily need. We certainly can't afford, but they're going to delight the liberal left of the party. So, Rick Davis, let me go to you and ask, do you think Joe Biden is going to not only be willing to compromise or think about compromising on some of what Barrasso had to say, but whether the left flank of his party is going to be willing to consider that? Well, I think that's the intersection where if there's a deal, it's where the left is willing to accept it and the right is willing to spend on it. Um, it, it, It'll be interesting. I mean, they're talking up a good game right now. Everything that's coming out of the White House is we want Republican votes. We don't want to try to do this on reconciliation. We don't have the Democratic support for that. And so we really need a bipartisan plan. And the bipartisan plan that's banging around, as you mentioned earlier, Jeannie, is the Capitol plan, which is substantially smaller uh, than what Joe Biden is offering. And those things that Senator Barrasso talks about, I mean, you know, maybe not just uh, climate related, but uh, there are a lot of other issues that aren't what Republicans are calling hard infrastructure, you know, something you put a rivet in. And uh, and so it'll be interesting to see where that rubber hits the road, because even in a bipartisan deal, you still need all the Democrats to vote for you. And 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 so the question is, can he hold them all while cutting deals with the Republicans? So so, Scott, it's so good to talk to you as a Democratic strategist and former D.C. Democratic Party chairman. Can mm-hmm. Joe Biden hold together this very big and and uh, very energetic Democratic caucus as he tries to negotiate with Republicans? Well, I think Rick is right. Um, they're they're going to have to be some deals cut. And I don't think it's a problem with holding the Democratic Party together. The liberal, the, the progressive left of the party likes what Joe Biden is talking about and what he's done so far. And so their deals to be cut with them. I think this bill of infrastructure is so important to America. And I think it's got bipartisan support conceptually that if he's got to break it down, if he's got to cut it up into separate bills, or if he can get the, the, the hardcore what you're going to put a rivet in, if he can get a deal on that right there, which is substantially less than what he's proposing, then you got something to work with. Because then what you're left with is what the Republicans are willing to pay for, as Rick said, and what the Democrats are willing to concede, at least on the progressive side. And then you put it all in a, in a cake bowl, basically, as my grandmother used to do. You mix it up and see what comes out. Essentially, that's what he's doing. Because the infrastructure bill, everybody knows deep down, you got to have it. What it looks like and what comes out of that cake bowl after mixing is what they've got to agree on. Scott, I wanted to ask you a quick question about um, the public support for this, because Joe Biden likes to talk about it, did so in the quote today on our sound on um, uh, actuality. And 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 in his pandemic relief bill, he had a stiff win of public support at his back. I mean, people were significantly in favor of spending that two trillion dollars to fight covid. But last week, when when Jeannie and I were on, um, uh, we talked to Frank Luntz as part of the president's speech, and he told me something that was fascinating, which is that the American public doesn't mind so much the taxing of the rich to spend that money. Uh, What they were concerned about is a overreach uh, by government in getting into all these various programs that that Joe Biden was talking about. And that's kind of the opposite of everything I've ever experienced in politics, where the programs are always very popular. But like, how are we going to pay for these things? 
Mm-hmm. What's your what's your reaction to that? Because I find that fascinating and potentially a problem for Biden as he sells his program. Yeah, you know, that's a pretty sophisticated analysis uh, by Frank Lutz. Uh, I don't think the average voter, Democrat or Republican, gets that sophisticated in their analysis. I will say this, that it's easy to support COVID because whatever programs you got, people believe in the herd immunity once you've got the, uh, the vaccination. Now, here with the infrastructure, the key will be jobs, jobs, jobs. Will this infrastructure plan put people back to work? And can he tap into that white middle class, uh, non-college educated voter who supports Trump blindly? Can he pull off 5, 10, 20 percent of them that can get their Republican representatives to buy into some or all or a significant portion of the infrastructure uh, bill and see what that see if that works? Because remember, all of this is about 2022. We just had a really significant election down in Texas. I think the sixth or seventh district, and the Republicans showed up and showed out, and the Democrats could not even compete at the top two levels. This is all about picking off Trump voters and seeing whether he can build a coalition. He thinks the infrastructure bill can do that. We'll just have to keep a close watch on it and see. And as Scott says, jobs, jobs, jobs. And here was President Biden today, again at Tidewater Community College in Norfolk, Virginia, talking about planning how to fund this bill. We have sound on that. I think it's about time we start giving tax breaks and tax credits to working class families and middle class families instead of just the very wealthy. And here's what the American Family Plan doesn't do. It doesn't add a single penny to our deficit. It's paid for by making sure corporate America and the wealthiest 1% just pay their fair share. And Rick, we are hearing of late some Democrats starting to get a bit nervous about all these tax increases and saying, you know, perhaps we don't have to pay for this upfront. It's infrastructure after all. Do you think they're going to go that route? You know, it's hard to tell what that final funding bill is going to look like. Uh, depends on how big it is, right? If it's more along the $600 billion level that the Capito bill looks like, uh, then there's going to be an easier road to to find funding for that. That's that's less than half of what the kind of spending that, that Joe Biden's uh, arguing for, which means probably less than half of the kind of taxes uh, that he wants to levy. But one of the things he was talking about in that clip is that he's giving not only tax increases to those uh, corporations and wealthy families, but he's also cutting the taxes of working class Americans. So it's a massive bogey between what he's giving away in credits and support payments uh, to what he's also adding to the uh, to the tax bill for for work, other other Americans. And so I think all of that has got to get rationalized down. Once we know what the spending is going to be, then you'll find a tax uh, bill potentially that could meet those needs. And, and, yeah, but and, you know what yeah. he's doing, if I may, what he's sure. doing is he's being unabashed about raising the taxes on corporations as well as those who make more than 400000 He's betting that the wealthy in this country won't mind because it's for the good of the country and corporations won't mind it. I got to tell you, as as a lawyer, I represent a number of large corporations and talk to CEOs and GCs. And I'll tell you, uh, this year, I've heard more and more, well, you know, we're just going to have to generate more income as opposed to trying to worry about the taxes that we're going to pay, because whether it's 28 percent or 21 percent, we simply have to do more. Uh, I've been hearing that. Now, I can't speak for all of corporate America, but I got to tell you, 
there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be done, however you define it. And uh, uh, the corporations are going to step up and they're going to want to help. So, Scott, we are going to we are going to come back and talk about that. I love your grandma's cake bowl analogy. And as you raised the important Texas election over the weekend, I am Jeannie Shanzano and this is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Sound On. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and I'm accompanied today by Bloomberg political contributor Rick Davis, as well as Scott Bolden, Democratic strategist and former D.C. party chairman. And as Charlie Pellet just mentioned, the FDA saying they're going to approve the Pfizer vaccine for ages 12 to 15 next week. That, on top of other good news regarding the pandemic in the United States, more than 100 million Americans already fully vaccinated, COVID cases continuing to drop, and the head of the CDC saying we may be able to reopen by July 1st. And of course, earlier today in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut all announced that major businesses are going to reopen by mid-May. So while things look positive for the U.S. and the president is expected to talk about COVID tomorrow. That's not true in other parts of the world. As the news keeps coming in of a particularly deepening crisis in India, and we have started restricting travel on India starting tomorrow, with mass cremation sites set up in many cities to handle the bodies of those who have succumbed to the virus, hospitals running out of oxygen, medicine, and supplies, the rate of vaccination is still below 5%, leaving millions vulnerable to the spread. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was on ABC's This Week on Sunday, where he told host Martha Raddatz the U.S. this week was going to send more military planes full of supplies to India and plans to do more even after that. We have sound on that. We are continuing to work to source additional critical materials to move them as fast as we can, both directly from the United States and also galvanizing partners around the world. So, Scott Bolden, let me bring you in here on this. Um, What do you want to hear the president say as we expect him to be speaking about COVID tomorrow, particularly as it relates to what we should be doing vis-a-vis our our friends and neighbors around the world like India who are suffering so much still? 
Well, I would expect the president to talk about the status of this pathogen, how we stopped it, herd immunity. Over 100 million people have the vaccination. Uh, Johnson & Johnson had a burp or a hiccup, and they're back being used, and then Pfizer uh, and their progress on approval. Uh, so I, I hope you will start off by talking about the progress we've made in this country and how we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we must remain vigilant. Secondly, we are a world community. As part of the world community, we certainly have to share because it's in our health interests, our political interests, and our national security interests to help others uh, who are our partners around the country, whether they're part of NATO or not. Uh, it is a world community. And if we are sufficiently grounded here with vaccinations and vaccines, uh, then to sh talk about a plan to share with India and others who need it, because we're a world community and we need to all get back to world travelers, whether it's business or socializing or family. Yeah, I can't agree more, Scott. I mean, the idea that we can somehow tackle the vaccine in our borders, but not worry about it in the rest of the world betrays how we got it in the first place, right? And the, and the fact exactly. that you're your, your senior staffer, the National Security Council in the White House, is out talking about India today and the need for critical materials related to fighting COVID tells you that the United States and, and, and probably every other country of the world that has uh, excess capacity to help needs to come to their uh, alliance because uh, unless the Indian population is able to fight covid we're never going to effectively fight covid and and i would say too i mean i you know the one thing president biden has been is empathetic and i think there are still communities in the country who are fighting uh, this epidemic in a way that's so far not resulting in the positive aspects of much of the other parts of this country and i wouldn't be surprised that he still echoes their sentiments that there's still a fight going on this we haven't won and until all our communities are included in this group, which, which are creating some level of immunity and going back to work, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense that parts of our country are still successful and others aren't. And Scott, I just wanted to follow up on that. We, we have a, a little period of time here. Um, it, just briefly, are you seeing um, vaccine hesitancy with any of the people that you work with in D.C. and around the country? We know it's out there. Are you seeing any of it? Uh, not necessarily in Washington, D.C. I have friends and colleagues, not many, who refuse to take the vaccine. They either have some alternative theory or they don't trust the government, or they want to wait and see how the vaccine is affecting uh, their, their circle of uh, friends and family and community. But those are exceptions to the rule. At the same time, I still have friends and friends of friends and family of friends who are still have people dying of COVID. This thing is not over. Those who are in the hospital, those who are still sick. And while we're getting better, uh, as Rick said, we cannot forget that we're still in this fight and families around this country, pockets of, of communities are still losing people to COVID. It's still very difficult, as well as those who are finally being able to hug their loved ones, their mother and fathers for the first time in a year. So we have to be ever vigilant about this. Very well said. We cannot forget people are still suffering in the United States and around the world. More on that. And I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg.
And I am back with Rick Davis, fellow Bloomberg political contributor, and Scott Bolden, a Democratic strategist and former D.C. Democratic Party chairman. And earlier, Scott had mentioned, I think, Scott, you said this is all about 2022, as we talked about infrastructure. <laughs> and, you know, you're speaking my language. Agree on that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. right here. The two of you strategists. And, of course, he, uh, Scott was referencing the big Texas special election over the weekend in which the Democrats did not get the results that they wanted. And Donald Trump did as two Republicans advanced to the runoff. Um, One is the widow of Ron Wright. That's Susan Wright, who's going to face fellow Republican Jake Elzey in the special election, in the runoff for the special election. So, Scott, let me just ask you, a lot of people have been talking about why didn't Democrats turn out. The flip side of this is, of course, it's not a district Democrats tend to win. So are we asking too much of them? Well, after the big wins in Georgia for the two Senate seats, as well as the Biden win, uh, it gets uh, it gets tough. But you're right about one thing. I mean, I've seen some columnists say this is a bellwether for what's to come in 2022. I'm not convinced as a Democrat just yet. The two biggest counties in in uh, District 7, I think, or 6, it's 6 or 7, the two biggest counties, uh, Republican base. Uh, they were highly motivated to keep that seat. And even though the Dems have, have hopes and, and wishes of seeing blue for the state of Texas, we're simply not there yet, even on the federal side uh, when it comes to presidential elections. But the population changes. We still got some time to go there. But in the end, the Republicans did what they had to do. They're going to keep that seat. And um, that's a good thing for them. They did what they had to do. And so uh, we'll see what happens in the uh, with, with the runoff. And of course, Scott mentioned the changes in the census count as Texas was one of the states that picked up seats. My home state of New York wasn't so lucky losing a seat. And in New York City yesterday, the state's U.S. Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that officials in the Empire State are considering legal steps and other options fueled by concerns that census, census funding was misused. And we have sound on that. There's a lawsuit, and we are looking if there are other recourses. We put about $3 billion, I think it was, and um, uh, they didn't use it adequately um, at the federal level. Trump tried to get in the way, and I do have concerns. I think if there were a fairer administration, we wouldn't be in this position. Rick Davis, the fact that New York missed keeping its seat by 89 people, as I keep saying, I think there's 89 people in my house at any given time. How could they lose by that number? First, I'm glad I don't live in your house. <laughs> oh, you're so glad. <laughs> but uh, look, I mean, there, there, anytime you have a count, you got winners and losers, right? And, uh, and, and look, you be careful about a recount because you may actually lose by more. It's not automatic that you pick up. Uh, bodies in this regard. But but look, I mean, it, it it's a big deal. Uh, uh, why is New York even in this position? Because high taxes, l- lack of investment in infrastructure, you know, uh, lack of ability to attract high tech jobs uh, and people are people are leaving. Um, I, I do want to go back to this Texas race once, because I mean, there is a, a question I have as a strategist. I mean, uh, the Democrat who they thought could compete on this, Jenilyn Sanchez, who ran against Ron Wright in the last election, had name ID, only lost getting in this runoff by 400 votes. And and so, like, 
as I understand it from the reporting, the Democrats didn't do anything to support her. Nothing as far as uh, money from the national parties, no big endorsements from uh, national Democratic leaders, no involvement by the president. I mean, if you're going to compete in suburbs in Texas where Biden only lost this district by three points, why wouldn't you play in this district with with the amount of power that they currently have in Washington right now? And with money in the DNC, they're cash rich and they still didn't invest in this race. Okay, so you agree that there's a question mark as judgment here. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, listen, we we all pick our poison, right? We all pick where we're going to put our money, whether you're state party chair, you're the DNC chair, right? Uh, But at the same time, whoever's making those decisions, this is one that was ripe for the Dems to pick off. But I, but I, I, I bet you that the DNC and others calculated the overwhelming number of Republican votes and, and then they calculated whether the Republicans in the race, there were like six or seven of them, were actually going to cancel each other out, or were they, was it a winnable race through whatever calculations they make? And clearly, whatever they calculated said this was not a winnable race, but, 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 but look, at the, look at the vicious cycle here. Once you decide that and you don't invest in that, you're guaranteeing that win for the Republicans and the loss by the Dems. Scott, I think you rich, I think you'd agree that if you're, ca- it, right, if you're cash rich, then you invest and see what happens. Yeah, I think you'd agree that politics is like the lottery. You got to play to win. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. exactly and, so. and, and Rick Davis, in the time we have remaining, was this as big of a win for Donald Trump as has been reported not really. I mean, Susan Wright was the favorite of the state party and all the grassroots. Uh, she was definitely uh, the one that the, the traditional Republicans and the Trump Republicans all supported. Um, you know, and so so the fact that Donald Trump got into this race kind of late. Uh, sure, to claim credit. She won. Uh, she still got to beat Jake Ellsley, who who has lost three times now to the Wright family, twice to her husband and now once to her. So. Maybe fourth time is his charm, but (laughs) that guy's going to, if he loses again, he's going to have a complex about the Wright family. (laughs) And and we should should remind everybody that this was, of course, a race the seat opened up because, unfortunately, Representative Ron Wright of Texas passed away after an 18-day battle with COVID at the age of just 67 years old. I believe that was last February. I may have the date wrong, but he passed away and was the first member of Congress to die of COVID opening up this seat and of course eventually his widow Susan Wright one of the two that is is uh you know going to be in this special um who made it to the runoff is in uh, in the running to fill his seat um coming up we are going to be talking about the big news of the day of the day the divorce by Bill and Melinda Gates and I want to thank so much Scott Bolden Democratic strategist and former DC Democratic Party chairman I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I am Jeannie Shanzano, along with Bloomberg political contributor Rick Davis. 
And of course, as Charlie just mentioned, the news just breaking that Bill and Melinda Gates have uh, decided to divorce after 27 years of marriage. And joining us to walk us through what type of impact this may have on the foundation and Microsoft is Sophie Alexander, Bloomberg News Wealth Reporter. So Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. What can you tell us about what you're hearing? Right. So we don't know very much right now. We got a Twitter post from Bill saying that they have decided to split. And um, the big news that we got on the foundation is that uh, they will continue to run the foundation together. So that is their biggest philanthropic endeavor. They also have the Giving Pledge, with the, which they founded together. Um, but, you know, this is $145 billion at stake, $146 billion at stake. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they actually split that up and what uh, becomes of that money. And and what what are you hearing? And I know this is all breaking and very early. So are you hearing anything about the, his future role as chairman of Microsoft? No, we we haven't heard back on that yet. You know, um, Bill has sort of stepped down before, um, but don't know how the divorce is going to impact that. You know, most of his fortune isn't held in Microsoft shares. Um, It's held in um, an investment company that he founded or he created with the proceeds from his holdings in Microsoft. Um, But only he only owns about 1.3% of Microsoft. Sophie, uh, I was I was curious. Let's get let's get what's really uh, what people want to know. Was there a prenuptial and if not, what are the rules in Washington? Is Melinda going to get half of that fortune? Um, well, Washington is a community property state. And so what that means is that everything that they acquired during marriage um, is, you know, fair game for 50-50 split. Um, that could change if there is a prenuptial agreement. But of course, we don't know at this point whether there was a prenup. And it's going to take some time for this to actually process. Um, so there's a, as far as I know, there's a 90 day holding uh, period before they can actually uh, split. And we don't know that if they've already done that um, and that the split is finalized or if it, that's starting just now. Um, but we won't find out for a little bit uh, what, what that actually means for the fortune. I was curious, too, um, how long does something like this take to resolve itself? I mean, they talked about in their tweet that announced the split, you know, that they want privacy for their families as they begin to navigate their new life. But they're wildly, globally public figures. I mean, mm-hmm. this is going to rivet people's attention, whether it's healthy or not, uh, to uh, for some time. Is is this the kind of thing that sort of comes to a, a quick end? I mean, when we saw the Bezos divorce, it seemed to be over before it started. Can we expect that kind of mm-hmm. speed mm-hmm. with this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, that'll be interesting. I th- the Bezos one did take months. So this could still play out over the, ne- the course of months. Um, of course, they already have this foundation set up. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is one of the most influential philanthropic organizations in the world. And this is the fourth biggest uh, fortune in the world. So there are billions of dollars at stake here. Um, the, the difference with uh, the Bezos divorce was uh, Jeff and Mackenzie didn't have a foundation like that set up. Um, and so once they actually did split up and it ended up shaking out to be 75 for Jeff, 25% for McKenzie, we started seeing a huge amount of 
philanthropy from Mackenzie herself. Um, you know, she gave uh, almost $7 billion or almost $6 billion uh, last year alone, which was unheard of for billionaire philanthropy. So the, the impact of this divorce might be smaller just because they're already so established in the philanthropy game. Um, but it, it will be interesting to see how it shakes out. And, and on that point of the Bezos divorce, are there any other lessons to be learned from that divorce? I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, they didn't have a foundation like the Gates do at, at, when they when they filed. But are there other takeaways from how that went that may sort of predict how we're going to see this pan out, it's particularly as it concerns the foundation and also Microsoft? Yeah, well, they said they would consider, uh, continue to run the foundation together. Um, so maybe there won't be much of a change there. Um, in terms of how the McKenzie-Jeff um, divorce played out, you know, that, that was also in Washington. So that goes to show that we shouldn't necessarily expect a 50-50 split here. This happens between couples. You know, they, they probably already have um, discussed what they're going to do with the fortune. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of time before we, we find out. Obviously, Sophie, a lot of the giving at the foundation level has been along the lines of, you know, battling various uh, diseases like um, uh, COVID. As, a, as, as I mean, I think Bill Gates had announced many years ago that he was worried about uh, this kind of pandemic uh, and all kinds of support for Africa uh, around uh, these kinds of diseases and pandemics. Is it, is it your sense and I know this is very early on, but is it your sense mm-hmm. that uh, there could be any kind of a shift, regardless of whether there's a change in the way the foundation is run, uh, uh, just from, you know, maybe uh, Bill or Melinda exerting some independence, a, a shift in what the priorities might be at the foundation level? Any special interests that haven't been accumulated at the foundation? Uh, that's a good question, and I'm not sure. I mean... Something that we see with billionaire philanthropists is they don't really, you know, take their philanthropy very seriously until they sort of step down from uh, the roles that made them so wealthy in the first place. And, you know, Bill has already done that. Um, So what we're seeing with the foundation could continue on uh, just as it has been. Um, But but yeah, we we don't know right now. We're sort of just sitting and waiting and um, hoping for answers soon. And, and can I ask you, you cover wealth. Um, how wealthy are the Gates? I mean, you said, I think, the fourth wealthiest uh, couple in the world, I think you said. Um, what is mm-hmm. that? How, how, what are we talking about in terms of the size and scope of, of, what they, of what they indeed have in terms of wealth? Yeah, the, so the, the Bill Gates fortune, we attribute it to Bill right now, but I'm sure that once we have more clarity on how that wealth is going to be split up, will create a profile for Melinda as well. But right now, the couple's fortune is $145.8 billion, which makes them the fourth richest in the world. And it's kind of mind-boggling to think of these numbers, you know, because there aren't just billionaires anymore. There are hundreds of billionaires. And with a $145 billion fortune, you're not even the richest person in the world anymore. Um, but the, the divorce of Jeff and Mackenzie um, also, you know, put Mackenzie in the spotlight because before Jeff was sort of the face 
of the couple, the face of the couple's fortune because he was running Amazon and people didn't know much about Mackenzie. She sort of laid low. It's different for Bill and Melinda because she is really the face of this foundation too. Um, but it could be interesting to see what happens when she, you know, has that money to, in her own name, in her own right. Um, not that it's, uh, not hers right now obviously it, it is it's such a good point first of all you're right it is mind-boggling but it's such a good point about how we've you know gotten to know uh Mackenzie Bezos in a way that we didn't prior to that divorce to your point Melinda Gates has been out there and she's been very active and working and, and writing books and other things but do you think there's a chance that she will be you know more public than she even has been after this divorce given she's going to have a substantial amount of wealth to potentially give away to causes she cares about? You know, that's that's the hope. And I think that, you know, the, the Gateses have been fairly transparent, at least very relatively transparent in their giving. Um, with the Mackenzie and Jeff giving, it was all pretty much behind closed doors. There wasn't very much of it, and that changed after the divorce, too. So that was interesting to happen, to uh, that happen. But uh, with the giving pledge, you know, they've been very vocal about wanting to give away the majority of their wealth away in their lifetimes and not giving um, that much to their kids, um, not much by their standards. I think their kids are all each getting still $10 million apiece. Um, but we, we could see more uh, from her. Um, you know, Bill is very active with his blogging, but Melinda is also very public, uh, a very public figure. So it's it's kind of a different conversation um, when we're talking about this couple. And Sophie, just quickly before we let you go and get back to work, do you have any sense of timing on this? Is there any indication how long this is going to take? Uh, it's a matter of what they've already done. They announced it today, but that doesn't mean that they haven't already finalized their divorce. Um, so depending where they are on that process, it could be days, weeks, or it could be months. Wow, that it's going to be fascinating. Sophie Alexander, Bloomberg News Wealth reporter, thank you so much for joining us with this breaking news. And of course, I want to thank Scott Bolden, Democratic strategist, and Rick Davis, Bloomberg political contributor. I am Jeannie Zeno, and this is Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.